Lord, we, we sing out that you are a God who keeps your promises, even as we put our children in front of you and say they are yours to do with as you please. We, we um, know that you keep your promises when you say that you love these kids and that you love us. And so, Lord, where there is darkness in the room, would you come bring light to that? Where there is a miracle needed, would you come bring light to that? And Jesus, uh, would the words that I have uh, in my heart today be pleasing to you and helpful to your body? Um, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. In the absence in the absence of good teaching, bad thinking just kind of springs up and grows rampant. In the absence of good teaching, bad, bad thinking, bad theology, unbiblical kind of notions just take root. Uh, I've spent most of the last 10 years telling you that it is not true that God will not give you more than you can handle. It is not true that God will not give you more than you can handle. It is fundamentally true that God will regularly give you more than you can handle so as to increase our faith and dependence on him. It is not true that when you or your loved one dies, they become an angel. It is not any, it, it would be equally val, if that was true, you might as well say when they died, they became an elephant because you're suggesting a change in class of being, right? A human cannot become angelic any more than it can become an animal, okay, on the other side of death. A human stays a human. In the absence of bad teaching on the way the church functions, we will devolve into thinking of our church like a club instead of an outpost of the kingdom of God. Uh, this week, a, a Facebook acquaintance um, posted about how he's been trying to get more people. He's in local government here in a town in the county, and he's been trying to get more people involved. And what do we need to do? And usually, I wouldn't say anything, but I'm piecing out of here in two weeks, so the filter is gone. <laughs> and I kind of clapped back with, you know, well, if you want people to be more involved, and if you want younger people to be more involved, then you need to decide if you want young people making the decisions, because if you don't, young people won't show up right? And, uh, and, if you, and, and you just need to be honest about that. And then somebody else posted like, oh, people are so apathetic. I'm in a number of clubs and people won't join them. They're so apathetic. And I almost said to that person, except we kind of have some mutual friends. And I didn't want it to get too close, right? Um, I almost said, it is not non-club members' jobs to sustain your club, right? Um, there is a difference between what kind of evangelism is God calling us to practice right? And, and who are we called to reach? There's a difference between that and why aren't young people coming to our church? Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, in the absence of good teaching on what the church is, we will like let kind of terrible, poor, worldly thinking kind of creep in. And I think that's especially true uh, that we're, we're running a risk of that in the transition we're experiencing right now. Because some of you, uh, Steph and I are the only pastors you've had right? Uh, and others of you 
like have been through so many pastoral transitions that like this cynicism has overtaken your heart, right? That's killing your faith. Um, or you've been wounded in that process. And so this morning, what I wanted to do, and over the next three weeks, that here's the sermons for the next week, week, this week. This is about expectations. We're going to talk about our expectations through the lenses of four biblical models of transition. Next week, we're going to talk about staying connected to one another in the midst of a transition. Because isn't it interesting that in Jesus' discourse in John 13 through 16, um, where he's telling them he's going to leave and all the transition that they're going to do, the big refrain is love one another, right? And then the last one is farewell, okay? Because what we also do is we, Jack does this. Jack does not like to say goodbye, right? And so what we do is we avoid saying goodbye, instead of actually engaging in the process, feeling the grief so that we can move on, right? And so, transitions, connections, farewell. Which, if you're a guest in the house, this sounds really exciting to you, I know. Um, but we are in a place uh, in our spiritual family where we need to have some conversations about some things. And I'm wondering if this might not reveal something of the character of Jesus to you. Uh, and so, we're going to look at four biblical transitions, four changes in leadership, that take place in the Bible, from Moses to Joshua, from Saul to David, from Jesus to Peter, and from Paul to a guy named Apollos. And I want to look at each of these four transitions, and what is the Lord saying to his people in the midst of those transitions? What do the scriptures say about those transitions? And then I just want to have, offer you a question to reflect. And my, my guess is, as I've been praying into this, that one of these questions is going to stick out to each one of us differently, okay? As we process the transition that we're in the midst of. And so the first, we're going to be all over the Bible today. The first transition we're going to talk about is from Moses to Joshua, and we're going to look at Joshua chapter 1. If you want to follow along with me in the scriptures, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 1. The context here is that Moses is appointed by God uh, to lead his people, lead the Israelites out of Egypt. He leads them through the Red Sea to, Sinai, to Mount Sinai. They become a covenant people. And then really they were supposed to leave there and just go take possession of the land that they had been promised. There's some disobedience on the way. And so like the, there's just like a 40-year detour through the wilderness. Moses' leadership kind of looks differently than he thought it would, right? And there's a 40-year uh, detour in the wilderness. And then the Lord tells Moses you're not going to enter the promised land with your people. We need a new leader to do that. There was a change of seasons taking place. Did you just turn up the air conditioning, Preston Mikulski? Okay, like made it colder or hotter? It's, 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 it's not an answer. Okay. Um, so there's this transition in leadership that Moses had something to lead the people that Moses was a good leader for the season they were in but he didn't partially because of his sin but that there was a different kind of leadership needed in the next season this is, a, this is a transition that I've been thinking a lot about over the last six months in part to say if, if I'm in this little model Moses and this has been the wilderness and it's been pretty good here in the wilderness. 
Imagine how much more it could be when we enter the promised land under new leadership. But it's really interesting as Moses hands the leadership to Joshua, Joshua chapter 1, uh, verses 6 through 9 say this. This is what the Lord says to Joshua as Joshua takes on leadership. But I think through, through Joshua, through Joshua saying to all of us this, the Lord says to Joshua, be strong and courageous for you are the one who will lead these people to possess all the land I swore to their ancestors I would give them. Be strong and very courageous. Second time he said that. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate them, turning either to the right or to the left. Then you will be successful in everything you do. Study on this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so that you will be sure to obey everything in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. This is my command. Third time, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Some of us have experienced bad tra pastoral transitions before. Others are doing this for the first time, and in the transition, fear can rise, right? There can be a fear of the future that erodes our trust in God personally. There can be a fear of the future that erodes our trust in God personally, right? And that might look like Man, I lost all of these relationships and made all of these changes and did all of these hard things and now he's leaving like six months later? Like, what's the deal, Lord? Right? So that could be like, man, I can't imagine a good future without Kyle in it. And I'm not trying to like put myself in the center of things. I'm reflecting back to you the things that you have said to me. There can be an erosion of our faith and trust and God's love and care and direction in our lives. When we experience transitions like this, there can be a fear that creeps in. Will the things that are special about this community stay special? Right? Will the things that are special about this community stay special? See, sometimes our fear of the future erodes our faith. And so a key question in this season could be, are you allowing your fear of the future to erode your faith in God's love and care and guiding in your life and the life of our spiritual family. Right? Fear is good. We're built in with fear. It comes. There's some things that we really ought to be afraid of, but fear can also be what? False evidence appearing real. Right? And so we have all this evidence in our heads of why we think this will go bad and it erodes our faith. Where is your fear eroding your faith and trust in God's love and care and direction in your life and in the direction of our spiritual family. That's what he says to Moses. That's what he says to Joshua as he takes leadership. There's this other transition from Saul to David. Saul is rejected as the king of Israel. Uh, and the Lord sends Samuel, uh, who's grown up by this time, not baby Samuel, sends Samuel to go find uh, Israel's new king. And he's directed to this little town called Bethlehem uh, and to this guy named Jesse who has a whole bunch of sons and in 1 Samuel uh, 16 it says that when Samuel and his friends arrived they saw the oldest son Eliab and Samuel thought surely this is the Lord's anointed but the Lord said to Samuel don't judge by his appearance or his height for I have rejected him the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, do you notice that the context of this verse is not 
it's not a blank check to do whatever you want to do because you know the motives of your own heart and nobody else does. This is in the context of the Lord's anointing. This is in the context of leadership. And very often when we think about anointing and leadership, where our eyes go is to charisma and to skill. Is to charisma and to skill. But the Lord says, and that, that's what height and appearance kind of correlate to for Eliab, is his, is his charisma and his skill. But what the Lord says he's looking for in anointing, he says that anointing is defined by character, not by skill. Anointing is defined by character, not by skill. Do you know why there's a new scandal about a pastor falling from grace all of the time right now? Because we keep elevating men and women of skill and charisma, not character. I don't know if you are in a position in your work where you've ever had to hire and fire, but here's what we always do. We always hire for skill and we fire for character, don't we? Right? 90% of the problems you've had in your workplace aren't because somebody's not good at their job. It's because they're a jerk, right? 10% of the time they're bad at their job, but most of the time they're pretty good at their job. They're just a terrible person, <laughs> right? And so we end up hiring for skill and firing for character. And this is, this is what we do in churches too, is we hire for skill and character and we just assume, we, we hire for skill and charisma, excuse me, and we just assume that character's taken care of. God says that anointing is defined by character, not by skill. Some of you think that I am the most anointed preacher that you have ever heard. But you know, one time before I went up to get up and preach, someone yelled at me because I wasn't at their friend's deathbed when he was taken off of life support. Anointing is kind of actually a tricky target, isn't it? Because for some, anointing has nothing to do with preaching and everything to do with visitation and care and compassion, right? But anointing isn't about one skill over the other. Anointing is about character. So a good question would be, am I evaluating, am I evaluating anointing with human eyes by focusing on charisma or skill, or am I evaluating anointing with God's eyes with a focus on character? The third transition I want to talk about is from Jesus to Peter. This is a fun one. I like this one. Peter is a spaz. Okay? Dude can't keep his mouth shut to save his life. I resonate with that. And Peter is named the leader of the apostles. In Matthew 16, Jesus says to Peter that he is a rock. He says, you are Peter, which means rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Peter is named the leader of the early church. Now that leadership passes on to James, passes on to Paul, but Peter is kind of the, the central leader as we turn the pages into the opening pages of the book of Acts. Now, by the time we get to the book of Acts, Jesus has died and has ascended, and the church that Jesus built is 120 people hiding in a room. That's what, that's what Jesus managed to build at the end of his life. Jesus managed to build a church of 120 people. But interestingly, in John chapter 14, Jesus says to his disciples, and he says to us, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done, and even greater works, because I'm going to the Father. 
Now, right, we've thrown this verse a lot about, if you've been hanging out at Regen, we throw this verse around a lot in faith that we can also do the kinds of healings and all the kinds of things and miracles that Jesus did, that he's given us that authority. But look at how this literally works out in the pages of scripture. Jesus says to his disciples, including Peter, you're going to do greater works than I did. And the first time Peter gets up to preach a sermon, 3,000 people are saved. 3,000 people. The church goes from 120 to roughly 3,120. And what happens uh, in, in transitions is it has a tendency to kill our faith and our expectation. What we do is we lower our expectation in transition instead of raise it, right? Transitions in leadership are actually a time to stoke the fires of our anticipation of what God could do instead of lowering expectations so that we can't be disappointed, right? Because all Jesus managed to do was 120 people. All I've managed to do is roughly 120 to 150. Right? What could happen in the next season? And, and I don't know that this church will grow by 3,000 people. It could. But what we know is that it will grow. Right? There's a standing invitation from Jesus in the midst of this transition for you to grow. For you to grow personally. For us to grow organizationally. For us to change and develop in some new ways. We want to stoke the fires of our faith so that our expectation rises for what God might do. Which is why the key question is, am I prayerfully, am I prayerfully stoking the fires of my faith? Am I prayerfully stoking the fires of my faith for the things that God could do in the midst of this transition? Right? Where's your faith at? Where's your level of expectation? For this last transition, this transition for um, Paul to Apollos, the lovely Mrs. Stephanie Tennant's going to join me for just a, a brief bit of co-preaching. Because um, she and I were talking through this uh, last night and this morning, and she said, I think I have something to say there. And so... Um, the transition I want to talk about is from Paul to Apollos. So Paul goes to a city called Corinth and he plants a church there. And when Paul moves on from leading that church, he hands the leadership of that church to a man named Apollos. Okay? And this is actually kind of a biblical model, right? That uh, Paul, and you see it a lot in the book of Acts, and if you read the letters of Paul, you get this vibe that what Paul does repeatedly is he kind of pioneers a church and starts a new thing and then he moves on and Apollos comes behind him to develop it, right? But the problem was that certain people in the church were really touched by Paul's ministry and certain people in the church were really touched by Apollos' ministry and so there began to be a divide in the church, right? And so in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 12, Paul says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with one another. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. For some members of Christ's household, of Chloe's household, excuse me, Chloe, hey, by the way, female leader of a church in the New Testament, by the way, Chloe, some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. Some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos. And just to make it more crazy, other people were saying, I follow Peter. And then somebody like super spiritual was like, well, I follow only Jesus, right? <laughs> um, 
Paul then goes on, he picks this logic back up again in 1 Corinthians 3, and he says this in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, verse 4. When one of you says, I'm a follower of, a Paul, of Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, aren't you acting just like the people of the world? When one of you says, I'm a follower of Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, aren't you acting just like the people of the world? The Corinthian church is divided over who is the best leader, Right? because of who preached the best sermon or gave the best care or did this or did this or did this or did that. And Paul says, goes on in verse five, who is Apollos after all and who is Paul? We are only God's servants through whom you believed the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts and Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together with the same purpose, and both will be rewarded for their hard work. So I think the challenge in this season is that we gravitate towards certain people, right? Like there's just personalities, people that we connect with, that it's easy to talk to, it's easy to see where they're coming from, to learn from them, to grow with them. Um, and so when that changes, when we feel that connection, when we feel um, that ability to connect with them and to, like, they understand you and you're really growing together and this is going really well, it's, it's so difficult when that is ripped away, right? And that's how it feels. It feels like a ripping and a tearing. And so as I was kind of, we were talking about this and processing about it, I really felt like the invitation um, to us, and it's even to us as we go on to our next stage, is, is an invitation to humility is to say, what is it that the Father wants to teach me in the next season? Even if it's maybe not the same kind of connection. And, and the irony being, for some of you, it will be a stronger connection. There are maybe some of you who under our ministry haven't felt as seen or haven't felt as heard. And as Dick and Anne come, you might feel more seen and more heard and more empowered. Um, but I think that the challenge for us is when we feel that connection, is to then have the humility to say, Father, what do you have for me in this next season? What is it, what Christ-like characteristics are Dick and Ann carrying that I need to learn, that I need to grow from? As we head into Grace Gathering, what are the things that we need to learn and the ways that we need to grow, and how do we humbly submit ourselves in that? And so I think I just want to encourage you that in those moments when you feel the, the pinch of, of disconnect, or of, of this, this isn't quite vibing in the right way, the way I wish that it was, to not allow that to distract you from the fact that God still has something for you. And so to kind of push through that and to say, Father, what is the invitation here for me, even in this, in this moment that feels uncomfortable, that is difficult. I think one of the things that we were talking about was how all of the pastors that we've had and all of the mentors that we've had, we felt a, a particular attachment to each one for a specific reason because of in that season they had a very particular encouragement for us or something that we needed to be modeled or those kinds of things but really over the course of our life we've needed multiple mentors and multiple leaders and multiple pastors because Jesus is just so big no one leader can like give us all of who he is right and so the gift that's hard to receive the gift that's hard to receive in this season is there are things that Steph and I just cannot teach you about Jesus or that we just don't model as faithfully as Dick and Ann will. And so there's an invitation to receive like that new leadership, but it, it comes down to are we cultivating the humility 
to receive that, right? Yeah, and I think one of my things in parenting always is it's a season, right? Like we're up four times a night, it's a season. Like this is not forever, which I know better this time than I did the first time. And I think that sometimes we don't look at our spiritual life in the same way. We don't view it as full of seasons. We get in maybe what's a, a good spot for us and we think, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna put it into drive and I'm put on the cruise and I'm just gonna stay right here because this feels really good. I'm growing just enough that it's not uncomfortable or, or maybe I'm overcoming some stuff I've been trying to, but now I just kind of want to settle in and just be here and I don't want to have to maybe kind of cultivate new relationships or, or work to kind of connect with a new leader. And I think the encouragement that the Father gives us is that there are different seasons. And so we've been in a season together that's been so, from our perspective, so sweet and so great. And there's challenges coming in the next season, but that doesn't mean there's not a different kind of sweetness. And so just to kind of remember that in those moments when it's challenging, that it's a season, mm -hmm. that this isn't forever, that there will be comfortable, familiar relationship coming. It's just that initial challenge that's so difficult. And I think the thing that will kill humility is a comparison of gifts. It's a comparison of gifts. I remember um, the first time Corey preached like a year and a half ago, um, I thought to myself and I said out loud, Corey may be the strongest preacher in the room. And Randy rebuked me and she said, when we compare gifts, it divides the body. And I wonder if that's what was happening in the church in Corinth was a comparison of gifts, right? Like Paul is so much more gifted at X, Y, and Z, but Apollos is so much more gifted at X, Y, and Z. And, and so what we're not called to do, here, what, here's what we do with a gift. Every leader, every leader in our church right now, aside from all of the leaders in our church, each bring a unique gift to the table. And what we're not supposed to do with gifts is compare them, right? That would not go well for you on Christmas morning, would it? <laughs> right? If your kids were comparing the gifts that you got them, right? That would be a little annoying, right? What we're not supposed to do with gifts is compare them. What are we supposed to do with gifts? Receive them. And so it's okay to say, this leader or this mentor or this person in my life did this thing better than anybody I've ever really known and to receive that gift and to enjoy it, but to stop at saying they did it so much better than blank. Do you see what I'm saying? To resist that temptation, to receive the gifts, and where there is comparison, what we're doing is we're comparing each individual leader to Jesus, right? And, by the way, that doesn't mean then, so, I was yeah. going to say, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't mean then that you're looking for how much they're not like Jesus, right? right? Because we can Christianize anything, right? Like, we need to pray for him because he is not really like Jesus in this way that I think that he should be. Right. <laughs> right. And, and the reality is we're all going to fall short if we're held up against Christ. Like, we, none of us can reach that goal until, until heaven. But I think, again, looking for how are they showing Jesus to you? What, in what particular ways and anointing has God given them? to be Jesus in your life and to learn and grow from them and to really have eyes to see that instead of eyes to see what's not there or what you wish was there. Yeah, I think, it, it, what is it? Comparison is the thief of joy, right? If you're comparing gifts, it will remove your ability to be glad to be together with one another, right? Um, and the comparison is, how is this person like Jesus, right? Where do they fall short? Yeah. And how can I learn and grow from them? Yeah, thanks. Um, in the middle of transition, let me read those questions to you again, okay? Let me just read those, those questions again. 
So first, am I allowing my fear of the future to erode my faith in God's love and care and guiding in my life and the life of our spiritual family? That's the first one. Second, am I evaluating anointing with human eyes with a focus on charisma or skill instead of God's eyes with a focus on character? The third question is, am I prayerfully stoking the fires of my faith for the things that God is going to do in this next season, right? The fourth one is, am I, am I cultivating humility to receive the gifts that this leader has to bring me, right? I think when we're in the midst of transition, my mentor Rick has said this to me for years, when things are changing, we need to be very clear about what's not changing, right? When things are changing, we always need to be very clear about what's not changing. There's this Psalm, I think it might be 136, where every other line is, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And in between those is all of Israel's history. Like God made the world, steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. He, we went down to Egypt, steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. He delivered us, we took the land. But ever, over, And it's almost like this, it's this really interesting thing where the poem does, look at all this change that Israel has experienced, but here's the same thing, right? The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. What does Hebrew say? Hebrew says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is the same these Sundays as he will be in the gap this summer between Dick and I, and he will be the same when Dick and Ann come, right? He's saying, but you know what's super interesting? Look at the context of that verse. This is out of the message. I never understood the context of this verse. Like, I, I you know, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and forever. Like, but look at the context of this verse in Hebrews 13, 7 and 8. He said, the writer of Hebrews says, appreciate your pastoral leaders who gave you the word of God. Take a good look at the way they live and let their faithfulness instruct you as well as their truthfulness. That, look at this. There should be a consistency that runs through us all for Jesus doesn't change. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, he's always totally himself. This isn't just a statement this isn't just a statement about the consistency of Jesus in the general. It's about the consistency of Jesus when we experience multiple leaders in our life. And this is where some accountability comes for our leaders, right? There should be a consistency that runs through us all, right? But there's also the sense of, uh, of looking at their life and recognizing that Jesus is ministering to us through them, right? Uh, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is always consistent, consistently himself, totally himself. And our prayer for you in this season, um, I'm just going to pray, and then Kathy's going to lead response time, I think. But I, I just want to pray that we would experience more of the consistency and the totally himselfness of Jesus. That's my prayer for you in this season, is that what you experience? More of Jesus more of Jesus. So Father, would that be true um, for my brothers and sisters, for my sons and daughters, um, that, uh, Lord, that you uh, would be more real to people and, and more faithful and more true, uh, more yourself. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.